Welcome to Breast Cancer Update Surgical Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Harry Baer, and to begin, he commented on skin sparing and nipple areolar sparing total mastectomy. I think you have to have some experience at this. I mean, we have not been doing this a long time. We don't have as large an experience as some people, but there are a variety of different incisions that can be used. First of all, it's an oncologically safe procedure. As long as you follow certain guidelines, the tumor is not too large. It's not too close to the nipple areolar complex. And oncologically, it's sound. It's been used both for patients with cancer, for prophylactic surgery, and patients with gene mutations with very little evidence or very little incidence of recurrences in the nipple areolar complex. So care has to be taken to preserve the blood supply to the nipple, at the same time trying to make sure you remove as much of the breast tissue as possible. If the patient has cancer, we generally always do a frozen section on the core of the nipple ducts that we take out. And some people like the inframammary incision. That works for patients with moderate-sized breasts. It's very difficult for patients with large breasts. Patients with very large breasts, actually, our plastic surgeons are not that enamored of nipple areolar sparing because their concern is that based on the reconstruction that they're able to do, the nipple will not be oriented in the right direction for a good cosmetic result, and they just as soon not have it spared. Skin sparing is also very good, and I've adopted a technique that I picked up from a group at Baylor in Texas that was published in the Journal of Surgical Oncology, I believe, where they use a liposuction cannula without the suction attached to bluntly dissect out all the planes between the subcutaneous fat and the breast tissue before completing the circumareolar incision and removing the breast tissue. It works quite well. It's a little more bruising, but it's much less difficult on the surgeon, I think, than the standard technique, which can be very difficult because you can't see well, and there's a lot of pulling. I think with the old technique that I used to use, I was concerned that I was traumatizing the skin and sometimes had skin loss based on the trauma, not the blood supply. So there's some tricks to it. You have to practice the technique and get shown it by some people. The questions are who's suitable for this. In certain parts of the country, patients really demand it almost. In our area, it's not that much in demand. We see a lot of more advanced breast cancers than they do in some parts of the country, and we give a lot of neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And I think with the uncertainty of where the tumor is after neoadjuvant therapy, we don't do nipple sparing as often as they do some places, but we do a lot of skin sparing. Any sort of clinical observations in terms of patient satisfaction? Yeah, I think those that express an interest in it are obviously going to be more satisfied to have the nipple spared as long as you don't get the complication of necrosis, which can occur in about 5% of patients. The ones that work out well are really, really excellent. And not only the patients are happy with it, I'm happy with it. It's very satisfying. It's certainly better than a nipple areolar reconstruction. And we've got another technique that's been popularized here in Richmond. There's a tattoo artist that actually does a nipple areolar tattoo that it's an optical illusion. It looks three-dimensional. I've seen a few of those that she's done, and they're really quite impressive. Hmm, that's really interesting. When you save the nipple areolar complex with a total mastectomy, the sensation is minimal if present at all, and so there really isn't an advantage from that point of view. It's really just cosmetic. What about the issue of oncoplastic surgical technique with partial mastectomy, segmental mastectomy? 
I think it's particularly helpful in the patients with inferior lesions, where the standard lumpectomy or segmental mastectomy techniques in the past, I have found, have led to very unsatisfactory results with the folding of the breast tissue over the inferior part of the breast. I don't use those complex techniques as often in the upper outer quadrant or the upper central part of the breast, where I don't think it really adds much. If I have to take a crescent of skin, I often will add the so-called bat wings that Mel Silverstein has described because it gets rid of the dog ear that you would get otherwise. But the most complex one that I do myself has to do with the what I would call a miniature mastopexy or mammoplasty approach for the inferior lesions where you move the nipple complex up and bring the inferior breast tissue back together. That also is a very satisfying result most of the time, and I've been very happy to have that in my bag of tricks. And again, any questions that you get about this, or you think there are any misconceptions about it? Well, I think people are sort of concerned uh, about overuse of it. I think people are concerned about how the radiation oncologists adapt to it. Early on in the breast conservation history, we got used to putting clips in the cavities of lumpectomy sites to guide the radiation therapist. Then they tried to discourage us from doing that because they were worried that if they did accelerated partial breast with a balloon, the clips would pop the balloon. So we got out of the habit of doing it. If you're going to rearrange the breast tissue in any kind of an oncoplastic approach, I think it's critically important to clip the margins of the lumpectomy cavity before you pull it together. Otherwise, the radiation oncologist would have no idea where the original tumor margins are. And if, God forbid, the margins are positive and you have to go back, it makes it a little easier to figure out what you got to take out. As a non-surgeon, I've kind of been always struck by that terminology of oncoplastic surgery. Right. What's it kind of mean to you? I think it means, in the simplest sense, it means having an awareness of the eventual cosmetic result of what you're doing when you do breast conservation surgery. In the more technical sense, it has to do with rearranging or repositioning breast tissue and or skin to optimize a cosmetic result. I have not done a lot of the really complicated oncoplastic techniques. And for patients who have what the plastic surgeons called megamastia, where they probably wanted to have a breast reduction most of their lives, I will occasionally bring that up, and they're usually so thrilled about it because they could never get it done because it's not an insurance-covered procedure. Those I'll do with the plastic surgeon, and I don't touch the contralateral breast. We design the excision of the cancer together, and then they do the other breast. And again, what kind of cosmetic outcomes have you observed in those situations? They're pretty good. They're not great. If you've seen patients with reduction mammoplasties, those cosmetic results are not that great, but... The patients are very happy with the results because, like I said, most of them have wanted to have their breasts lifted and reduced for years and never could get it done. Any comments on where we are today in terms of margins, both with invasive disease and non-invasive disease? You know, there was a consensus statement that came out, and I'm sure you got a lot of questions about this. It seems like the never-ending discussion. Yeah. So I think the consensus statement was on invasive breast cancer agreed 100% with what I've been doing all along ever since the NSABP B06 trial where the criterion for a negative margin was no tumor on ink. And that's what we've used as a criterion. We use that for DCIS as well. I know that's more controversial. We actually looked at our data on re-excisions 
and published it about a year ago or a year or two ago. And our re-excision rates were 14%, which is at the low end of the spectrum. You know, I'd love to say that's because we're brilliant surgeons, but mostly it's because we don't re-excise most of the time unless it's a tumor on ink. And our local recurrence rate was the same as it is everywhere else, no matter how often people re-excise. And the most interesting finding was patients who had a re-excision had a higher recurrence rate. Well, what that tells me is patients who need a re-excision have biologically different disease. They've got skip areas, and that's why you couldn't get a negative margin the first go-round. So I think the margin issue is somewhat overblown. I was interested in the Yale study that was published in the New England Journal recently on shave margins, doing routine shave margins of all six edges, and showing a dramatic reduction of the re-excision rate from, I think, 35% to about half of that. Half of that is still more re-excisions than we do without doing any routine shave margins. And what the article didn't show is that it reduces local recurrences. That's the bottom line. That's what we're concerned about is local recurrences. So we don't do routine shave margins unless it's an occult lesion and the mammographer tells me your calcifications are kind of close to this edge or that edge, in which case I'll probably take a little extra tissue on that edge. But we don't do routine shaves. Could you describe a clinical situation where you would do a re-excision even with clean margins? And the one that I've heard people talk about are multiple close margins. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And less than a millimeter at multiple margins. We also have trained our pathologist to tell us whether the close margin is focal or moderate or extensive. So if it's extensive, close to multiple margins, and extensive, I think, is defined as more than three or four millimeters across, we'll probably re-excise that. On the other hand, there's some patients whose disease is so aggressive, multiple positive nodes, etc. I'm much more concerned about getting them started on their chemotherapy than I am about improving on the margin, because I don't know what the exact percentage is, but the high percentage of the time I go back to re-excise a margin because it's close or even positive, I don't find anything. So continuing in terms of the issue of surgery, I'm curious in terms of your thoughts about axillary node management in terms of post-op. We'll get into the issue of neoadjuvant in a couple minutes. But in terms of technique of sentinel node, indications for sentinel node, anything new or any misconceptions out there that you find? Every once in a while, we'll see somebody who's doing a sentinel node biopsy on a patient who's got clinically positive nodes or had an ultrasound biopsy positive node. That doesn't make any sense to me. And frankly, in our practice, patients with a proven positive node at the time of diagnosis is probably going to be a candidate for neoadjuvant therapy of some sort. We use both the radioactive dye and the blue dye. I think the success rate, the accuracy are higher by using two dyes. A lot of people don't like the blue dye because it messes up the operative field of their lumpectomy. It makes it hard to see what you're doing. I think you just have to be very compulsive and careful. You have to really look for another hot node until you don't have any hot nodes, until the counts in the axilla are 10% or less of the ex vivo count of the hottest nodes. I know there's some new dyes that have been described, some fluorescent dyes and so forth. I haven't had any experience with those. I've been pretty satisfied with what we're doing. I think the biggest questions are, what do you do with the patient with a positive sentinel node? Clearly, I think if patients meet what could be briefly defined as the Z11 criteria, 
That is, a patient who's having a lumpectomy and radiation and has a small enough cancer and has one or two positive nodes and not more than that, you can emit an axillary lymph node dissection. It's become more complex now because we don't really know the role of the radiation that those patients got in preventing axillary recurrence. So if accelerated partial breast irradiation becomes more frequent, which it is, and I guess we'll have to wait for the B39 results to know whether this is really a valid approach and whether it'll continue to become more common. That raises an issue. If you're going to do partial breast irradiation, is it really safe to leave behind positive nodes in the axilla? So those may be patients that probably, maybe they shouldn't have accelerated partial breast irradiation. Of course, a lot of patients come into this already having heard about that and wanting that approach. So I think you have to balance those two things out. Any comments in terms of the issue of number of sentinel nodes that are actually accessed? What are some of the, I guess, techniques that you utilize? How do you look at that question? How often do you see a patient where you just can't get more than, say, one node? So that's one of the reasons I use blue dye and radioactive dye, because there's certainly radioactive nodes that aren't blue and blue nodes that aren't radioactive. Well, I mean, I think you keep going until you don't have any more radioactive blue nodes, and you have to look fairly carefully. You can't look too carefully for blue nodes, because then you're doing a lot of dissecting just to look for them. But the radioactive nodes, I think you have to really look and not settle. For patients who only have one sentinel node, and I've been compulsive about looking for others, particularly if they did not have neoadjuvant therapy, I'm okay with that. I know the accuracy is higher if you get two or more nodes, but I think if you get a clear-cut blue-hot node and you've looked carefully in the axilla, I don't think you can make up nodes. I think the same issue occurs in the neoadjuvant setting, you know, where the accuracy clearly is different if you get three or more nodes, but there's only what sentinel nodes there are, and you can't just take out another random node and call it a sentinel node because you wanted to get two. How often do you actually palpate a node that you remove and is positive that's not picked up on sentinel node? That does happen. Not commonly, but occasionally. I would say one time out of 30 or 40, maybe. You mentioned partial breast radiation in the NSABP trial. Can you go back through what that trial is looking at and where things stand right now with PBI and what you're doing in your own practice? Right. So... That trial is a very large prospective randomized trial comparing accelerated partial breast irradiation given either with an implantable device within the cavity, and I believe only the one balloon catheter type was allowed, or they could use external beam techniques, or they could use interstitial catheters. The trial is completed accrual, and I think the most common technique was actually external beam-focused approaches. But the principle is the same, and we do use the technique while the trial is still ongoing or at least awaiting results. Our radiation oncologists are using the Contura device because it allows them to customize the radiation field a little more carefully than the single-source balloon catheter that they were using before. Some places, I know the surgeons put these balloons and devices in at the time of surgery. We have not adopted that approach at all. And part of the reason for that is you really don't know whether the patient's suitable for that approach until you've seen the final pathology. For example, if you have a few positive sentinel nodes, that might be a reason not to do accelerated partial breast or what have you, or if you have to go back and re-excise margins like we talked about. So in general, if the patient's a candidate for that, we get them to the radiation oncologist 
early after surgery. They talk to them about that. And they put the balloons in in their department under ultrasound guidance, either through the corner of the lumpectomy site or more usually through a separate stab wound. So let's move on and talk about some of your cases that really get into, I guess, interdisciplinary management, new adjuvant therapy, et cetera, beginning with your 50-year-old lady. So this is an interesting lady who illustrates a number of issues in diagnosis and treatment. She noticed a mass on self-exam in the upper inner quadrant, and she had breast imaging, although apparently it took her a while to get anybody to be convinced that she needed it. And the interesting thing here is that it was read as dead negative, which led to a further delay in doing anything about it. When she eventually came to our center, we looked at the mammograms. You can clearly see the mass at the very posterior part of the breast incompletely imaged on the mammograms. And instead of having a cord needle biopsy, which should be the standard approach to diagnosing any palpable or image-detected mass, she had an excisional biopsy and ended up with a 2.1-centimeter cancer that had positive margins, and it was high-grade with lymphatic invasion, ERPR negative, and HER2 negative, so a triple negative breast cancer. And when we did the MRI, which we would have preferred to do with an intact tumor in place, showed a suspicious axillary lymph node about 1.7 centimeters in greatest dimension with a bulging cortex. And I'll comment here that a lot of places are doing ultrasound of the axilla routinely. We have not been doing that because we use MRI so extensively, and I probably don't want to get into that controversy, but... If the MRI doesn't show any abnormal lymph nodes, we don't do the ultrasound. If it does, then we use ultrasound to biopsy any suspicious nodes. So based on her phenotype and the node positivity, we decided to go ahead and give her, I guess I'd call this semi-neoadjuvant since her tumor had already been excised, and treated her with AC followed by weekly Taxol, which is a fairly standard regimen for triple negative breast cancer. So as you know, because you participated in it, we recently did a survey of, I think it was 70 investigators, both surgical and breast medical oncology investigators, about neoadjuvant therapy. And I guess one of the things that we saw was it looks like within the surgeons, post-neoadjuvant sentinel node has become kind of standard. Can you talk a little bit about how you think through the issue of timing of sentinel node and use of sentinel node in the neoadjuvant situation. Right. So the options that have been discussed and used, one is to do the sentinel node biopsy up front before the patient starts treatment out of a desire to know, quote, the true pathologic stage of the patient. I mean, I think if the patient doesn't have a grossly abnormal node, they're likely to have only microscopic disease, if any, in the lymph nodes. I think there's a pretty good likelihood, particularly in the triple negative and HER2 positive subset of sterilizing those microscopically involved nodes. Once you've got a positive node on a sentinel node biopsy done pre-treatment, you're sort of stuck with having to do an axillary node dissection. At least that's what those people are doing. I think for patients with negative nodes, in other words, no suspicious nodes, no biopsy proven positive nodes, the post-neoadjuvant treatment really is becoming more accepted. And the MD Anderson group published their experience and had a dramatic decrease in the need for axillary node dissection. I think the more controversial patients are the ones who have documented disease in their lymph nodes prior to treatment. This is a prime example of another advantage of using neoadjuvant therapy. You know, initially we used it 
because some people thought it would improve patient survival and outcomes. That's probably not the case. But then we started using it because it improved the odds of having breast conservation surgery. I think this is another potential advantage of using neoadjuvant therapy for patients you know are going to get chemotherapy at some point to reduce the morbidity of their local regional management, both surgery and radiation. As you know, I've been very committed to this whole area for, gosh, I guess it's been 20 years or more now. As far as we can tell, there's no downside to doing chemotherapy up front. That's the first thing to keep in mind. So if you know the patient's going to get chemotherapy based on the markers, the molecular characteristics of the tumor, there's no downside to giving it pre-op. And then there's a number of upsides. One is the increased chances of breast conservation. Even if the patient has multicentric disease and you're not considering breast conservation, we can drop back to what we started talking about at the beginning, and that is you can improve the chances of successfully skin sparing or nipple sparing mastectomy by shrinking the tumor away from the skin or away from the chest wall if that's where it's headed. You decrease the chances of having to have an axillary node dissection. And then there's the less palpable advantages for patients like this. So here's a patient that, as you said, probably should have genetic testing before making a final decision about her treatment. That used to be a two-week process. Now with the whole panels being done that we do, it's a four-week process. Patients get very antsy about having a cancer and nothing's happening for four weeks. Getting in to see a plastic surgeon, at least in our practice, and I'm sure in some other people's practice, can take some time. And organizing schedules between the breast surgeon and the plastic surgeon to get the patient into the operating room together for an immediate reconstruction, if that's where you're headed, can also be complicated and time-consuming. With the neoadjuvant approach, you've got four to six months to get all that stuff done. And it's one of the reasons, it's not the most important reason, that I always insist on getting patients back in to see me midway through their chemotherapy. The most important reason is to make sure I know what's happening, I understand what's happening to the tumor, it's not progressing, it's not becoming inoperable. Not that a medical oncologist doesn't examine the patient, but they're not always examining the patient with the same things in mind that I am. What about in the patient who's having a mastectomy, I've heard people, for example, your colleague Terry Maminos, talk about the fact that in those patients, just shrinking the tumor down, he prefers that happening, less of a chance of a positive margin, et cetera. Any thoughts about that? No, I think that's right. It certainly makes life easier. The patient we just talked about, you know, this is a patient who had a biopsy cavity that was about four centimeters in diameter with enhancement on the MRI around the rim and positive margins. It's hard to know where you're supposed to cut that out. Basically, you just excise the previous cavity. Fortunately, she had no residual cancer, and we didn't have to worry about another positive margin. While we're on that subject, I think it's critically important for surgeons to know that when you're doing this with patients, it is vital to have the tumor marked before you start treatment, or at least early on in the treatment cycle with a clip. I've often used, over the years, skin tattoos, I think most of the criteria, particularly for some of the trials, include the use of a clip partly to sort of standardize the pathology examination of the tissue. That's really important. And I think the same holds true of the positive nodes, and we can talk about that now or later if you wish. So another big issue that's out there in terms of neoadjuvant therapy is a patient with HER2-positive disease. And I see you have a patient, very young, 32 years old, with a HER2-positive tumor. Let's talk about her. So she was a young Asian woman with an 8-centimeter cancer, 
that appeared rather suddenly, according to her. And it was a high-grade ERPR negative HER2 that was 2 plus on IHC and HER2 amplified by fish. She had positive nodes by ultrasound, biopsy proven. And this young lady, despite having no family history, also had a BRCA1 germline mutation. So she got what is one of, again, one of the possible standard protocol, although I think the two that are most commonly used in the setting are either AC followed by weekly Taxol with HER2-targeted therapy, and she got trastuzumab plus pertuzumab based on the data showing that that increases the path CR rate by adding the second HER2-targeted agent. Another alternative, which is also supported by the evidence, would be taxane, carboplatin, and then again the two HER2-targeted agents. And actually, when we come to the decision of whether or not to do neoadjuvant therapy in particular patients, the who are, you know, patients that we could have done a lumpectomy on easily, not this patient with an 8-centimeter tumor, the fact that they can get the second HER2-targeted agent in the neoadjuvant setting and it'll be approved is actually one of the reasons we choose to do neoadjuvant therapy, because they can get the double-targeted therapy, which they couldn't get in the adjuvant setting, at least not yet. So just out of curiosity, though, knowing she had a BRCA1 mutation, if this were triple negative and not HER2 positive, would you have, and she could have gone to surgery, would you have just gone ahead and done a bilateral mastectomy and then treated her post-op? Yeah. She had a really big tumor that was bulging up under the skin, positive nodes. Again, like I said before, yeah, she eventually did have bilateral mastectomies because of her mutation. But there's no downside to giving her pre-op chemotherapy and making the surgery easier and getting the dramatic results that we got. So what actually happened with this lady? So she had a really good response. By MRI, it was dead normal. There was no residual tumor and no abnormal lymph nodes. And on physical exam, it just melted away? Yeah, it just melted away. Her only problem during treatment really was some problems related to her venous access device, which had to be removed. Now, interestingly, I did a sentinel node mapping on her, and I just wasn't convinced that I was detecting enough of a signal to be certain that I was picking up sentinel nodes. So I just opted to do a lymph node dissection. What was the reason? Was it anatomic because the tumor was there or what? Well, you know, some of the theoretical reasons that people say you shouldn't do a post-neoadjuvant sentinel node or the fibrosis of the lymphatics fibrosis of the lymph nodes that have the tumor in them. And I would say prior to doing a lot of neoadjuvant therapy, the most common reason for failure to map a sentinel node was that you put your finger in as a grossly positive node and it just blocks the flow to anything. And the success rate is lower in all the trials and in our experience when we have analyzed the B27 patients, the success rate of sentinel node biopsy or mapping is lower than it is in the primary setting in which case you should do an axillary lymph node dissection. But it doesn't, you don't lose anything by trying, as long as you don't compromise and sort of, like I said before, make up a sentinel node. So what did you find in her axilla? So her nodes were all negative. She had a small amount of residual tumor in her breast, which isn't surprising. And by the MD Anderson's residual cancer burden scoring system, she was a class two, which has a somewhat guarded prognosis And like the other patient, we offered her participation in the B51 study, which we hadn't talked about, which is a study for patients whose nodes convert to negative. It's the sister trial to the Alliance trial we talked about earlier, 
where radiation therapy may be omitted in a randomized fashion for patients whose nodes convert to negative, either on a sentinel node biopsy or an axillary dissection. And quite frankly, I think she wisely declined (laughs) participation, partly based on how big her tumor was to start with, although we don't know for sure that the tumor responds as dramatically to chemotherapy, that that's not okay. And then she resumed the trastuzumab. I think we actually offered her enrollment in the B50 trial as well. That's a trial looking at TDM1, which is the antibody drug conjugate form of anti-HER2 therapy. She declined that. She was concerned about the potential side effects, which are not that severe, but it just concerned her. And just to remind everyone, in that study, there's a randomization between TDM1 and the usual standard of care, which would be to finish out a year of trastuzumab. Correct. I guess the one thing I'm curious about, and I don't know if you had enough clinical experience to comment on this, is, you know, it's interesting, TDM1 actually contains a chemotherapeutic agent, but it's delivered through the HER2 antibody, presumably directly to the tumor cell. So you presumably don't see chemotherapy side effects like nausea, vomiting, and alopecia. Is that your experience? Right. So the few patients that we've had go on then gotten the TDM1 have been, it's been well tolerated. I mean, I've I get all the toxicity reports from around the world, so I know that there are toxicities, liver problems, probably one of the more frequent. Because of the way AEs are reported, it's hard to tell (laughs) how many of these side effects are actually due to the drug, but yeah, there are some side effects. This trial is also having some issues with accrual, and I think in part, at least in the United States, it's because by giving dual-targeted neoadjuvant therapy, we're getting pathologic complete response rates in more than half the patients. And, of course, once that happens, they're not eligible for that trial. That's interesting because, you know, when you said you're having trouble with accrual, I was th- before you explained why, I was thinking, well, why would you have trouble? I always thought it was an awesome trial, really appealing. I mean, I think if it were me or somebody in my family, I'd want to go on that trial. I, Absolutely. I mean, there's no way you're going to get TDM1 any other way. Exactly. I think also maybe, actually we saw this in the survey, and it's very controversial about this issue of can you give post-op Pertuzumab. As you say, the FDA indication is only pre-op, but there are docs, and we found in our survey almost half of the medical oncologists were given some form of pertuzumab post-op in the adjuvant setting, so maybe that could contribute to it. Yeah, it may depend on patient's insurance. Another sort of general issue about neoadjuvant therapy in general is the patient who has neoadjuvant therapy and then post-neoadjuvant therapy has a positive sentinel node. Now, when we asked the surgical investigators, every single one of them said that patient's going to go for an axillary dissection, in contrast to the post-op ACOSOG kind of thing that you were, Z11 type of thing you were talking about before. Do you find there's any confusion about that in terms of general practice? Yeah. I haven't seen any. I can see where there would be. Certainly in a patient with, well, I think the other thing that confuses it, of course, is the Amaro's trial, where patients who had positive sentinel nodes are randomized between radiation and axillary dissection, and the radiation was as effective and less morbid. But those, again, those are patients who have not had prior treatment. I think that the standard of care outside of a research setting is to complete the axillary lymph node dissection. I wish it weren't, But I think that's what it is. And I think because a residual disease in the lymph node after chemotherapy potentially is different disease from disease in a lymph node 
in a patient with no therapy. This is by definition chemo-resistant disease, and we're not usually going to give more chemotherapy to those patients anyway. So I think counting on radiation to control that disease may be wishful thinking. I hope it's okay, but we'll see. So I thought the end of this story would be the patient's now a year and a half down the line and they're doing great, but actually it looks like she had a pretty major unexpected development. What happened? It was interesting. While she was still on trastuzumab, she developed this sensation of flashing in her right eye. She went to see an ophthalmologist who thought that maybe she didn't see anything wrong and wasn't very concerned. And then she reported this a few days later to her medical oncologist who immediately got a head CT, which showed a solitary metastasis to the occipital cortex, which of course is a visual cortex. And actually what she may have been experiencing was minor ophthalmic seizures. And so it was a solitary lesion by MR and she had it excised by our neurosurgeons and will go on to get radiation after she recovers. So let's hear about your 60-year-old lady, which really gets into one of the key problematic issues in neoadjuvant therapy, specifically the patient with an ER-positive HER2-negative tumor. So this is a standard 60-year-old patient of our practice who's got type 1 diabetes and also was on long-term hormone replacement therapy. She noticed the change in the shape of her breast inferiorly and wasn't really too concerned about it, but then her routine screening mammogram showed some skin thickening and uh, traction of the inferior skin of the left breast, and eventually by sonography, really, because the mammograms had a hard time seeing this area because it was so far back and down at the inframammary crease, showed a two-centimeter mass really at six o'clock, very inferior. And interestingly, even looking at the films and the ultrasound, I could never feel it with certainty. But it was ER-positive, PR-positive, with a low KI-67 and HER2 negative. So given the size of her breast and the size of the lesion and its location, I thought she was really a borderline candidate for breast-conserving surgery. And we talked about neoadjuvant therapy with her. And she agreed to be part of a trial, which we've completed accrual on. It's a pilot trial that we did at our institution and had several affiliate institutions that also participated and helped us complete the trial. The primary endpoint of the trial, because it was a small pilot, was really to determine whether patients with the intermediate scores would agree to a randomized assignment to treatment. So basically, the design was similar to the Taylor X trial and the responder trial, which we'll talk about later, where patients with a low recurrence score on an oncotype DX assay from their core biopsy, patients with a low score receive hormonal neoadjuvant therapy, patients with a high score greater than 25 receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and patients in the intermediate range were randomized to hormonal versus chemotherapy. What we know so far is that patients accepted their randomized treatment quite well. There are only a handful of patients who refused their assigned treatment. We don't know the results in terms of responses. We're collecting those data now. So this situation, based on our survey, Again, as I mentioned, there's a real split. Certainly in the post-op situation, medical oncologists and surgeons, I think, are used to using the recurrence score to decide whether or not to use chemotherapy. What about this strategy outside of a trial setting? Kind of really makes so much sense. I mean, it's great that you're doing the study, but what about that? 
We'll use it occasionally off study now that the study's completed. I mean, the idea of the pilot was to determine whether there's a feasibility to doing a larger trial to really address this in a definitive way. I don't know whether there'll be support or interest in doing that, but we and others have done that. And I think the chemotherapy in this situation, the patients are likely to get an objective response. I mean, if you look at the B18 and the B27 data, the objective clinical response rate to chemotherapy across the board is around 90% or better. And that, of course, includes hormone receptor positive patients. The odds of them getting a pathologic complete response are very low in the 10 to 15% range. But if you can get the same effect with a less toxic therapy, and in a patient who you were in the post-operative setting would never have given chemotherapy to anyway, it makes sense to try the hormonal therapy as a less toxic and possibly just as effective option. And the ACASOG trial that was reported by John Olson a few years ago showed that with aromatase inhibitor therapy, the objective response rate in a group of, it's a selected group, it was a group of postmenopausal women with all red high scores, in other words, strong expression of estrogen receptor, the response rates were in the range of 70%. And a high percentage of those patients went on to have breast conservation surgery successfully. So clearly hormonal therapy can be successful. It's grossly underutilized in the United States, I think, but very commonly used in the UK and the rest of Europe. And Michael Dixon and others have reported on this approach extensively. And you have to be patient. The big difference between chemotherapy and hormonal therapy in the neoadjuvant setting is that these tumors are not going to melt away the way more aggressive tumors do on chemotherapy. Do we know anything about the response rates specifically in ER-positive, HER2-negative tumors to neoadjuvant chemotherapy? And even more specifically, we do know about response rates based on recurrence score. So there are only small studies. The response rates to chemotherapy in the high recurrence score patients is better than it is in the low score patients, but the statistics are not terribly convincing. What is more clear, I think, is that neoadjuvant hormonal therapy is much more likely to be successful in patients with low recurrence scores than patients with high recurrence scores, which probably corresponds to the ACASOG trial high all-red score patients. One of my favorite things at meetings, CME meetings to do, is to present a patient like this, ER-positive, HER2-negative tumor, surgeon would like to see it shrunk down, whatever reason, maybe making lumpectomy more likely. Would you do a genomic analysis like recurrent score in the patient? And everybody says no. And then we go, well, actually, here's the second case, same situation, except the surgeon already did the recurrent score and it's low. Are you still going to give chemo? And then they all change what they do. So it's kind of, you know, it doesn't really make sense, actually. Well, I mean, you know, the sort of exceptions that prove the rule. I just talked with one of my medical oncology colleagues about a patient. We did the recurrent score. It's 16. But her hormone receptor level is pretty low, and the grade is high, and it's a big tumor, and she's a young nurse. And I think she's going to eventually give her chemotherapy because she feels like she would give her chemotherapy anyway at some point. I think the idea behind using hormonal neoadjuvant therapy is for the patient that you suspect you might never give chemotherapy to. And it's sort of the flip side of if you're going to give patient chemotherapy at some point, you might as well give it neoadjuvant. 
on the flip side of that, if you're never going to give this patient chemotherapy, why give it in the neoadjuvant setting? Although, if you really want to shrink the tumor down, it seems like you ought to use the most effective therapy. I mean, you could always give the chemo post-op, too. Yeah, and I've had patients, I had a patient, a similar patient, much younger, like in her early 40s, who had a similar course, got the hormonal therapy, seemed to have a good clinical response, but had a fairly sizable residual tumor at the time of surgery. And based on her age and the amount of disease that she still had after six months of hormonal therapy, she did get chemotherapy post-op. But we don't know if that's right or not. That may or may not be useful. So what's the follow-up on this lady? So she had her surgery after six months of letrozole. Interestingly, because it was so hard to feel, we were doing serial ultrasounds every month because I wasn't comfortable that I could really assess the response. And the ultrasound really didn't show dramatic shrinkage over time, but it turned out at the time of her surgery, where we actually did an oncoplastic approach because of the location of the tumor. She had multiple foci of residual infiltrating lobular cancer that had a diameter of up to a centimeter, but the cellularity of it was 5%. So she actually, although we don't ask them to do RCB calculations on patients who had hormonal therapy, she was a class one, which means that she was a near-path CR. Our radiation oncologist actually agreed to do accelerated partial breast irradiation, which they're hesitant to do in patients where we shrink a big aggressive tumor with chemotherapy. So what's the study looking at exactly? The trial is actually for all patients who were considering neoadjuvant therapy who are ERPR positive and HER2 negative. So they agree to go on the trial. If their score is 11 or less, they get hormonal therapy. If it's more than 25, they get chemotherapy. And if they're in the intermediate group, they get randomized. Obviously, it's a trial of about 60 or 65 patients that's completed accrual. The size of the trial was designed to try and get at least 30 intermediate patients and determine whether less than 10 would refuse a randomized treatment. That was the primary endpoint. I'm really looking forward to seeing those data. I'm sure you are too, but I actually think that it's going to be the low and the high patients that'll be really interesting to see whether it plays out the way we think it does. Totally agree. That's why we certainly want to, we're obviously not going to report it just based on the refusal of the randomized treatment. We want to see what the pathologic response and clinical response and breast conservation rates are. And the entry criteria included The main criteria, at least clinically, other than the markers, was that the surgeon had to judge that breast conservation would be greatly facilitated by shrinking the tumor. That was sort of the, it had to be two centimeters or greater and and a difficult breast conservation case, basically. So I guess these neoadjuvant cases that you present of kind of underscore a theme. We saw it in the survey, and I'm not exactly sure how well this has been penetrated out throughout the entire community setting of um, approach to neoadjuvant therapy really based on ER and HER2. This issue of the surgeon tailoring their approach to patients based on ER and HER2, for example, one of the questions we asked in the survey is, are there any situations where you think it's reasonable to make, to go ahead with local surgery after a positive biopsy without knowing both the ER and HER2? And people either said, no, I want to see it in everybody, or clinically negative axilla under a sonometer, okay, maybe. How do you answer the question? Well, I think it's always nice to see the markers. It's certainly preferable. HER2 can take a long time at our place for some reason intermittently. But, yeah, I mean, I think a very small cancer, less than a centimeter with negative nodes, 
it probably doesn't make much difference to the local regional management to know the markers. Anything over a centimeter, I want to know if it's triple negative or HER2 positive because we're going to actually, I'm going to consider putting an access device in the patient at their primary surgery. So they don't have to come back for another procedure. But if it's really small, even a half to a one centimeter HER2 positive cancer who's otherwise healthy is probably going to be a candidate for chemotherapy and HER2 targeted therapy. So that's a patient I'd probably consider putting a port in unless it's borderline. I mean, sometimes the imaging size of a tumor doesn't turn out to be the true pathologic size of the tumor. So I think there's still some controversy in HER2 positive disease about whether tumors less than five millimeters benefit from that aggressive approach. So let's flip over to the adjuvant post-op side and talk about your 48-year-old lady. This was a lady who did have a strong family history of breast cancer and was having screening mammograms and MRIs based on that. And she had a focal density, which wasn't very well-defined, but she had a mass and an abnormal lymph node on her ultrasound, and both of those were biopsied, showing infiltrating duct carcinoma at 6 o'clock, as well as in the axillary lymph node. Her markers were ERPR positive, HER2 negative, and in the MRI she had concurrently, she had another mass. And as often happens, and this is one of the concerns people have about doing MRIs, is that there was about four other sites reported out from an outside MRI that they recommended that they be biopsied. And this is where I think some patients get driven to have mastectomies that they may not need. Because most of those, when we looked at them, were not that suspicious. However, there was an area that was suspicious in the contralateral breast that was fairly large, a large area of clumped and linear enhancement, about greater than five centimeters in dimension. That was biopsied and showed DCIS. So despite that, despite the size of that and her family history, she sort of dictated her own treatment to some extent. She elected to undergo breast conservation surgery, which I was okay with, but she insisted that we not do an axillary node dissection. She did not want to do neoadjuvant treatment, although we did discuss that. Because of her markers, she was hoping she wouldn't need any chemotherapy despite having positive nodes. So she insisted that I only remove the known positive node and any other sentinel lymph nodes at the time of surgery and not do a full axillary node dissection. So we did that. And what we did is an approach that we've started using fairly recently based on some data from Stanford and MD Anderson where the positive node had been marked with a clip at the time it was biopsied. And on the day of surgery, we had our breast imagers, along with localizing the tumor sites, inject a little bit of India ink into the clipped node so we would be sure that we could find it. She underwent segmental mastectomies on both breasts and a sentinel node biopsy, as well as biopsy of the clipped node that was also marked with India ink. And I think this is very important because it avoids some of the concerns that people have about the sentinel node is not always the node that was biopsy proven to be positive. And some of the data presented recently from MD Anderson, they're able to reduce their false negative rate down into the low single digits by making sure they remove the clip node. The Indy Inc. approach is actually one that has been reported from Stanford. So she had her surgery. The only positive node was the one that had been biopsied prior to surgery. The other sentinel nodes were negative. She had a total of six nodes removed, and it was, I think, a six-millimeter metastasis in the node that was known to be positive pre-op. 
and then she had DCIS in the other breast. She had an oncotype recurrent score done on her invasive cancer, which was 13, clearly in the low range by using the Oncotype DX criteria. So she was eligible to be enrolled in the SWOG 1007 trial, or what's known as the responder trial, which is a node-positive version of the TaylorX trial, which was completed. So, so the bottom line is this trial is for people with limited nodal involvement, up to three positive nodes, where clearly this, quote, standard of care would be adjuvant chemotherapy. And then in patients with lower recurrent scores, I guess it's up to about 25, going into the low intermediate or medium intermediate, randomized between chemo and not. What was her thought about entering the protocol? What was her motivation? After having discussions with me, having discussions with the medical oncologist about the pros and cons of chemotherapy in her situation at her age, remembering that the previous SWOG data on omitting chemotherapy in patients with hormone receptor positive, node positive disease was exclusively in postmenopausal women. And she was still premenopausal at age 48? Right. She's borderline. I mean, she's perimenopausal at 48. After going through all that discussion, she said, I can't decide. I'd have to toss a coin. If I'm going to have to toss a coin, I might as well let the study toss a coin and agreed to be randomized. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, that's the kind of patient who should be going in this study. But right. I always thought, even thinking back to the classic initial adjuvant studies that randomized between chemotherapy and not, just how difficult it is to approach a patient with that kind of randomization. She had equipoise in her mind, and because there's equipoise in terms of what to do about these patients, that's why there's a randomized trial. So I see her recurrent score was 13, which the trial stipulates as intermediate. What happened? She was randomized to hormonal therapy, and she's in the process of getting radiation to her breast and the axilla because of the fact that we removed only a few lymph nodes, and she's known to be node positive. What would you likely have recommended to her? What do you think your medical oncology team would have recommended to her about adjuvant chemotherapy if she hadn't gone in the trial? Yeah, with the recurrent score, I mean, I, I think they would have probably leaned towards giving her some chemotherapy. They probably would have been sort of, if you use a, the word gentle, they probably might have given her four cycles of TC or four cycles of just taxane to try and minimize the toxicity. I think they would have probably... Definitely used a regimen that avoided adriamycin and the risk of cardiac toxicity for her. Outside of protocol setting, how are you and the physicians on your team approaching the issue of genomic assays to determine chemotherapy use? First of all, do you use any of the other assays besides Oncotype, for example, the Mamaprint? No, we really don't. There are some of the folks in our community that are using Mamaprint exclusively. We've even had the experience of a patient who had surgery, had a port put in at the time of her surgery because her Mamaprint score was high. She came to see one of our medical oncologists. She fit the profile of somebody that we would have done an Oncotype recurrent score for. And so we sent that as well. And Mamaprint showed her to be high risk. The Oncotype recurrent score was low. And so I ended up taking her port out a week later. 